So we'd like to begin by uh, introducing ourselves. I'm Marcia. And I'm Pat. <laughs> and Pat's going to excuse himself for just uh, a couple of moments. <laughs> and while he's doing that, let's um, spend a few moments sitting silently together, just beginning to arrive here in the meditation hall. And so I'd like to um, warmly welcome you here to IMS. And I know you've already been warmly welcomed by uh, quite a number of the staff people here. So another warm welcome. And it's really uh, a great joy for me and an honor to be here with you for this uh, next six days. <clears throat> 
spending time together in a way that is really quite unique and um, special in our culture. As we enter into retreat, each one of us alone, and also all of us together, we're creating, or we could say co-creating, a temporary village, a temporary spiritual practice community. As we begin this period of commitment to exploring, to cultivating, and deepening our inner life, expanding and deepening our capacity for a a focused, concentrated attention, along with deepening our understanding of the nature of things. I think for many people, there's a tremendous amount of time and energy spent, or maybe more accurately, expended, cultivating an outer life, doing things, producing things, acquiring things, going places, being somebody, becoming something. So these next few days are really quite a special and unique uh, in that none of this is really important. Not anything that will be asked of you in the ordinary ways of the seeming requirements and the expectations of the world. Whether the particular way that Pat and I will be offering the teachings and the practice is familiar to you, or if it's brand new for you. You may know the experience that arises for many of us at the onset of a retreat, and also at times during a period of dedicated practice uh, at home or in other places than a retreat center. It's this sense of entering into sacred time and sacred space, a sense of entering into a kind of sanctuary, both within ourselves and within the surrounding uh, area that we're in. For me, whenever I enter into a time of teaching or whether I'm entering into a time of personal practice, there's always this feeling of entering into sacred time and space, both within myself and within the space around me. The sacredness of life and the incredible diversity and the natural rhythms of the life that's happening all around us here changes in the light, dark to light, and then light to dark again and again. The weather, deep winter, 
and all of the manifestations and, and changes with this, this season. And all of the forms of life, the community of beings, we could say, that we share this place with. Many birds, other creatures, the trees, and all of the other manifestations of plant life. And of course, the air itself, the natural world, so close around us and so easily available to connect with here. It's a great gift, really a great gift that we're not separate from, a gift that holds us in itself. This natural world is really a great teacher for us, a great teacher of the sacred and the perfectly natural fluidity of the diversity and the change that just simply is. Considering that nature is no problem to itself, no problem to itself in itself, we can learn from this mirror of naturalness, the just isness, the just beingness, the absolutely open hearted presence, we could say, of this perfectly natural world. Our nature as nature. I think it's really no surprise that humans are drawn to places like this. Places where untarnished nature and beauty is so easily accessible. Many of us experience a very natural, open-hearted connection in moments of simple, clear presence, when we take the time to really, truly arrive and to really, truly just be, to simply just be. So for instance, with the late afternoon night light, maybe, maybe you were just being with that today, or an early morning sunrise. So just being and open-heartedly, really, truly seeing the particulars, for instance, of how midwinter displays itself in small and maybe in larger ways. And of course, along with any of this and many more possibilities, moments of a silent, simple, clear presence in our body, our heart, in our mind, any time of the day, any time of the night. One day in the um, 92nd year of my mother's life, she and I were out uh, for uh, a few moments of walk during our daily out-of-doors walking time, and she stooped over one of these walking times and looked very long and silently at a flower that was very full in its blooming 
very full in its liveliness. And then after a couple of moments of silently being very present with this flower, she said, it's so great to be alive. Probably every one of us in this room has had some unexpected or unsuspected and maybe even some exceptional moments during times of very simple, immediate presence. These moments of a relaxed, clear, unfettered attention, which we could call moments of spiritual attention. Our heart, our mind opens, relaxes, eases in the midst of this simple, direct presence with things. And I think that the natural world is often the place where this happens for us most easily, at least at first. As the days of this retreat unfold, you'll be learning how to develop the purity and the focus of this clear, unfettered attention. One of the wonderful things about being here at IMS is that there's quite a degree of accumulated energy. All of the people who have come here to learn and to practice, all of those who have come here to do their inner work, to explore, to investigate the nature of things, and all of the teachings that have been offered here and all of the teachers who have offered them. It's really a very wonderful, symbiotic, and ever-expanding energy that we're both partaking of and that we're adding to. And so, here we all are. During these days of retreat, we have the great gift of being taken care of in a very beautiful and very simple way. All of our basic needs are taken care of. While you're here, life is pared down. It's simplified from your usual daily activities, demands, and seeming needs. There's really not very much to do these next days. There's sitting and walking, eating, hearing, spending a little bit of time each day with your yogi job, sleeping, and most importantly, relaxing and diligently learning to cultivate a clear and mindful, concentrated attention. So compared with the ways of the world, there's really not very much to do over these next days which is a very good thing to remember <laughs> because I think some of you may have such a strong habit of keeping busy 
that you may go on creating all sorts of things to do while you're here, even though there's nothing much to do, and creating things to do just simply out of habit. So in light of this, one of the things that we're practicing while we're here is what could be called renunciation, letting go of busyness, letting go of the usual distractions that you use uh, to engage, or that you engage to try to relax out of all of the busyness. And what a gift it is, this renunciation. It's not at all uh, very usual in our culture to take the time to engage our energy in this way. To really simplify our life. To come to a place like this to be. To really just simply be. Not to become anything or anybody. Not to fill up the mind with more stuff, but again, to just simply be, directly connecting with your experience just as it is in the moment. And so we begin together in a kind of sanctuary, being here together in this place of safety and protection, this place that holds and engenders deep respect, deep acceptance. It's really a valuable gift that you've given to yourself and that you give to each other simply by being here with each other. I think for just about everybody, There are many different mental and physical states that come up at the onset of a retreat. Maybe some excitement, maybe some nervousness, a little worry or anticipation, maybe delight, maybe a sense of relief. Lots of energy moving through one's body, mind, and heart. Even for people who have sat many retreats. Because each retreat is unpredictable in the unique ways that it will unfold. It's human nature as we enter into something new. A little added energy moving through the body and heart that has many different tones to it, we could say. And certainly for me, in teaching or in beginning a personal retreat, many of these same flavors of energy move through my body, through my mind, and my heart as well. And how very fortunate that we are embodied as we are, embodied in the human form, this human form, this precious, human existence. This is what makes it possible to practice, making it possible to be able to look within and to cultivate a pure, concentrated, and balanced heart and mind 
based in kindness, compassion, and wisdom. We're actually a minority on this earth. We're actually a minority in this universe, and of course, who knows beyond. I mean, if you think about it, for instance, there um, are many, many more insects on this planet than human beings. I have a friend in Taos, New Mexico, where I live, who runs a plant nursery. And she told me that there are 200 million bugs, as she put it, per human being on the planet. So how fortunate, really, it is that we're embodied in the way we are. The human heart, mind, and body are really the most conducive towards developing the purity of a concentrated mind rooted in kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, and the great gift of wisdom. Because of the particular mixture that each one of us has of both pleasure and pain, there's just enough of each. And certainly there's sometimes a little more of one or a little more of the other. And at times, there may be some very big handfuls of one, and seemingly not much, if any, of the other. But the truth is that it changes back and forth, back and forth within a week, within a day, within moments. So really, this human realm is what offers us the very best conditions that we could ask for. This is the place. This rare and precious human realm that we very fortunately find ourselves in. It's said that if the world were water, and a wooden ring, one foot in diameter, was thrown upon the water and blown about by the winds. It's said that a blind turtle, surfacing once every hundred years, would put its neck through this wooden ring more easily than one can obtain a precious human existence. We're a rare species within the enormous breadth of life forms on this planet. There's an ancient teaching that says, those who have a precious human existence, with all of the conditions, the opportunities, and the blessings in place to meet the Dhamma and to practice the Dhamma, to practice the way of truth, to practice the purification of the heart, that these beings are as rare as daytime stars. So here we are, a whole room full of daytime stars who have a wonderful five days ahead of us, a time of cultivation and discovery, a time of exploration, purification, and understanding which some of the time 
might not be so easy and may even be quite challenging at times. But all the while, your time here very much includes the very real potential of bringing forth experiences of relaxation, calm, tranquility, joy, happiness, and illumination that a concentrated mind and heart inspires. As we enter into this period of sustained spiritual practice, there are a few supports that are readily available to you. And so now I'd like to just take a brief look at the first of these with you. And then Pat will continue on talking about the rest of these supports. Our first support is the wonderful gift of silence. This silence that very gently holds us in itself. Silence is really amazing in certain ways. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge. Silence is infinitely patient, boundlessly spacious, open, allowing, and accepting. This container of silence that has no boundaries and that everything comes out of and returns to. And of course, within the silence, there are sounds, all kinds of sounds that arise and pass. At times, you'll hear the sound of my voice. You'll hear the sound of Pat's voice, and occasionally, possibly, other voices. You may hear sighs, maybe cries, maybe laughs. We'll probably certainly hear some coughs and some sneezes and moving bodies, maybe the occasional roar of engines, the sound of bells, for sure, and birds, and maybe dogs or other creatures. We'll hear the sounds of the wind and other weather sounds. All kinds of sounds arising and passing in the midst of silence. And sometimes we interpret sound as noise. It's important to note that this is an interpretation and to notice it as an interpretation. Is this, is this or that sound noise? What happens if it's noise? Are you relaxed? Is your heart open to simply hearing, simply receiving the sound? Or is there a contraction, some form of aversion, a feeling of resistance, or a feeling of being disturbed? If it's just a sound, 
If it's just a sound, our relationship to it is basically a relaxed acceptance, just simply and directly hearing and knowing any given sound, which sometimes may, you may just simply perceive as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And of course, we're not always in this relationship to sound. So with an open heart, just mindfully notice. Notice your relationship and your response or reaction to sound and noticing it without judgment in the midst of silence. Sometimes within the silence of a retreat, it feels as though all of the windows of the world, all of the windows of the universe, of life itself, have been thrown wide open. And when this is our experience, we may have a sense of freshness, a sense of beauty, as though an open-hearted stillness, receptivity, and fresh clarity has been let in. And sometimes, at the onset of a retreat, people may feel some anxiety about being silent, not only for a few moments, but for whole days and in the company of other people. It might seem like it will be awkward or kind of strange or maybe too difficult or maybe you might think it would be impossible. But as many of you in this room know, by the end of a retreat and often somewhere along the way, most people feel that silence is one of the most precious aspect of retreat time, because it holds everything, but doesn't hold on to anything. Everything just simply and naturally comes and goes in this spacious, patient acceptance of silence. The key here, as I've already mentioned, is that you don't have to be anybody. You really don't have to be anybody special. You don't have to present yourself. You don't have to be a somebody or become a somebody. You just simply be. And it's really a great relief for most of us to just simply be. Silence is where we learn to listen, to really listen, and where we learn to see and to really, truly know our experience. It's in this respectful, supportive, and beautiful container of silence that therein lies the possibility for the boundless blossoming of our practice. And I'd like to just mention a few very practical uh, and helpful pointers in relationship to inner and outer silence. It's helpful during this time of retreat to 
not purposely make eye contact with other people in retreat, other yogis, unless it's a very um, it's very appropriate in a specific situation. This is a way to both honor and respect your own and others' inner work. And I'm sure, as each of you know, that direct eye contact can be a very powerful form of communication that can very quickly and easily distract us from our practice. The second thing is that um, keeping any uh, daily writing to a very bare minimum, or maybe not even doing it at all. If you feel that it's helpful to make a few practice notes, that's okay. But it's helpful not to make any long journal entries, that kind of writing, during retreat time. And certainly not um, writing the next chapter of your book or uh, the next great poem. And the last thing I'd like to mention, another aspect of uh, keeping and protecting this container of silence and not filling the mind up, is not reading books while you're here on retreat, Uh, not reading any magazines or books while you're here on retreat. Some of you probably brought books with you, but refrain. Don't fill up the mind. There's already a whole lot in there that you'll get a chance to see some of. So this is the first support, silence. And I always like to take time uh, to explore it at the onset of a retreat, uh, because I think there's quite a bit more to it than uh, not just not talking. And Pat will now talk with you about the other supports that are available uh, to you during this retreat time. Before I go there, how about if we take a little stretch break? You all have been sitting here for a while now. So feel free to stand up, move the body around any way that feels good to you. Or sit there if that feels good. a few yawns out there. How could that be? Before I launch into the body of 
what I'm going to say tonight. I, I want to offer my welcome also. Um, it's lovely to come to IMS, and for me, it's my spiritual home. It's where I first started practicing uh, this form back in the late 70s. It seems like only yesterday, but it wasn't. And I, I want to honor your presence here. You had other choices, really. You could be sitting on a beach somewhere in the Caribbean right now. But here you are. For some reason, your inner guidance system has brought you here for this, for this time. And as Marcia said, this is really a kind of rarefied assembly that we have here. I mean, coming together and creating a place of, of refuge where you're practice and where you, where you practice here and you undertake the, the highest values of awakening, of compassionate action, that's still a pretty rare event on this planet. There's six billion people thereabouts and not many are engaged in this level of exploration that you are, that you are called to for whatever reason. And to be able to come here and join this sacred assembly, um, you've been supported directly and indirectly by uh, many, many people. And if you take a moment to think about the support that has got you to this moment in time, well, those people, those parents, or whoever took care of you when you were an infant and unable to take care of yourself, and then there were the, the medical personnel throughout your life that had served you and kept, kept this body going. There were all the teachers you encountered, from those who taught you your ABCs to how to ride a bicycle to hit a baseball to learn how to meditate. And then there were the people who built your houses and made your, made your clothing and delivered your food it. Think of that support network that has supported you to bring you to this place for this moment. It's like you each are at a pinnacle of this vast support network. And in turn, you are part of the support network of many others. So that's the web. And just as support and interdependence is absolutely necessary for our survival in the material physical world, support and interdependence is vital to our spiritual pursuits. And the refuges and precepts are very important supports in this practice. How many people here are familiar with taking the refuges? Just raise your hand. Okay, most but not, but not all. In a few minutes, I'll invite you to take those refuges, but f for a few moments, I want to um, share with you how 
um, how I've kept those refuges alive in my practice. Now, classically, there's three parts to taking the refuge. Take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And there is a classic kind of introductory phrase. And um, that introductory phrase is uh, Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. And that means um, I bow, I praise, I honor the enlightened one, the perfected one, the exalted one. That's the introductory phrase. Followed by Buddham Saranam Gachami. I take refuge in the Buddha, or I go for refuge with the Buddha. Well, who is this Buddha that we take refuge in? How do we look at that? How do we work with that? How do we gain something from that? Or how does it support us? How does it, in a way, protect us? We can look at it in, in two ways. You can look at it as the Buddha the, in, in an external form. Yes, there was this man. He was not a god. He lived 2,500 years ago. He gave up a very comfortable life to pursue these questions, the most profound and deepest questions that humankind has wrestled with. And he set out to discover. And when he gained his illumination, he then had the choice to either choose to just sit with that or to teach. And he took the hard road. He taught for 45 years, and he walked everywhere he went across northern India. He didn't burden the beasts of burden. He walked through dust, through mud, through a very bad back that he had later in life. And so I like to envision that man walking, meditating, teaching, when I take the refuge. It's one of the ways that I perceive that. And it brings me a connection with that man who, who once lived those 2,500 or thereabouts years ago. And then there's an internal way to conceive of taking refuge in the Buddha. And that's in our Buddha nature. That quiet, still, accepting, compassionate, loving, wise nature that is there all the time. It's the radiance that we have. And granted, a lot of the time it may be covered up with all kinds of things, anxiety, restlessness, doubt. But below that, and you've all had those moments. They can happen in nature, as Marcia just spoke about, where you're just kind of held, the heart opens, 
can happen when you're in interaction with a friend, you haven't seen them for a while, you see their face, and there's just that moment where everything clears and the heart is open. There's a loving presence or with your pet, sometimes even in a, in a sitting. So by beginning the day um, with reciting these refuges, and we will begin our morning meditation um, with these and the precepts each day, um, it sensitizes our organism in a way to our Buddha nature. Brings us a little closer as we contemplate and as we say, these phrases. And typically, I also like to say them sometimes in English, sometimes in Pali. It kind of uh, refreshes them a little bit, get a little different angle on them. And then we take the refuge in the Dhamma or the Dharma. Dhamman Saranam Gachami. And again, we can view that in a couple of, through a couple of different lenses. We can look at the, at the Dhamma as the body of teachings that the Buddha espoused for those 45 years. And I tell you, the more I study this stuff, the more amazed I am of the genius of this man. His facility to understand the human mind and psyche um, as far as history shows, no one before or after has had this grasp on kind of a psychological intuition and, and a vast spiritual understanding. And now a lot of his teachings are matching up with um, discoveries in science and the cosmos, etc. It's absolutely extraordinary. So we can reflect on the Dhamma as his body of teachings. And another way that I like to consider just what this Dhamma is, it's the nature of nature. If you look, at the, look into the teachings, the crux of the teachings, it's really understanding nature Find and finding some way to relax into that flow of nature and not fight against it. It's really, in a visceral way, really getting it that everything is impermanent. And that's the way it's set up. And if we are to grasp and pull on things, well then, that's fighting nature. And it hurts, and we're going to suffer. And there's the exploration of the selfless nature of it all. Phenomena rising, flowering, passing away, experiencing it through all our senses, internally, externally. So taking refuge in the Dhamma is really just relaxing into nature, not fighting it. And sometimes I like to just sit and just feel 
the vibration of everything. It's all changing. You can feel it in your body. You can sense it in the air. You can sense it in the people around you. There's nothing holding still. Just feeling that as I might recite that phrase, taking refuge in the Dhamma. And then the third aspect is taking refuge in the Sangha. Sangham Saranam Gachami. The community, community of practitioners, it's, it's generally referred to. But I like a little expanded scope on that community. I like, to, I like to reflect on my ancestors, all those generations, all the way back. They all did something right, because the DNA ended up here and I'm alive and that head popped through that turtle in some way and here I am. So I bow to them and the decisions they made that allowed me to have my chance. And also reflect on all the contemplatives of all the different practice forms, all the religions. On back to the before these current newer religions, indigenous peoples. And then I certainly like to reflect on the lineage of teaching that has become so dear to me and consider my sangha, my community, those teachers who've taught me and the teachers who taught them on back and back and back to the Buddha who I consider my root teacher and is your root teacher also. And so, in some way, I never feel like I'm practicing alone. On this reflection of the Sangha, all the healthy and wholesome intentions and motivations and efforts of all those that have come before, the metaphor I like to give in, uh, for Sangha is really based on my love for scuba diving. And those of you that have been on coral reefs, it's just a fabulous environment, such life and color. I mean, literally, you can spend hours in just one little space observing all the, the beauty and the interdependence and life there and the color. But when you look a little deeper into a coral reef, you, you realize that it's built on this substrata that goes back thousands of years of exoskeletons of organisms that had lived before. And just, just that outer edge is alive, vibrant alive. Well, here we are, the outer edge. We've got our moment in the sun. We don't know how long it is. We, our time will pass, and those who we've connected with, they will have their time. But right now, it's your time, your time in the sun. And whatever has guided you here uh, to spend time like this in reflection and in exploration um, is mysterious. It's part of each of your mythical 
journey which you're on. You're each on a mythic journey. And you'll have challenges, you'll have joys, you'll have the whole deal. So let's, let's take those refuges now together. And tonight, um, let's take the refuges in English. Um, you'll hear them in Pali tomorrow. And we'll just, we'll just do the, the, the three refuges. It's the middle section on there. And let's, let's say them together. We'll do them, three, we'll do them three times. And those of you that uh, have done this before, you know, help those who are new at it. It's no big deal. But it's a very big deal. I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go to refuge to the, to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha for the second time and just reflect on, on what that might mean. What is that Buddha nature? Who was that man? What are these teachings? What is the community? I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha. And for the third time, I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha. Thank you. And I also want to talk about another support or protection, if you will. And that's the precepts for training. Another way you can look at them is they're a guide for living. And curiously, over the years, as Buddhism has moved to the West and through the West, uh, the precepts haven't been emphasized that much. It's kind of interesting because they're emphasized a whole lot more in Asia. And there's lots of reasons for that, and we could get into a big discussion over it. But suffice it to say, that the emphasis is growing now. As Buddhism gets a little more rooted here in the West. In fact, there's a number of sanghas now across the country that offer courses in the precepts. Um, ours is one of them in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. We offer a six-week course, and each week uh, we study a particular precept and we discuss it, and uh, at the end of that time we formally take the precepts, and we have a big party. And everybody's invited to watch those who decide to formally take the, the precepts and support them in it. There's a, 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 there, there was a prophetic take on the importance of precepts in the West and how that, how that may come about. And it's relevant to what we're going to be doing this week. And I want to I read it to you. It's very short. And it's, um, it's by Ajahn Chah, the, the legendary Thai forest master. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of his take on Westerners. And a lot of Westerners came to his ashram in Thailand. And he actually made a trip and he taught here at IMS. I actually sat that retreat. But 
a lot of Westerners would come there. And this is an excerpt from an article that, that appeared in Inquiring Mind almost 20 years ago. And it was an interview with monks from a monastery in England, uh, Amravati. And here's, here's a little piece of it. When Ajahn Chah started teaching Westerners, Thai people often asked why he just taught them meditation without stressing the first two steps, generosity and virtuous conduct, ethics. He replied that Westerners would in due course find it impossible to make progress without cultivating generosity of heart and a good moral, and a good moral foundation. He was, however, content to let them find this out for themselves. So years later, we're starting to see more attention paid to this. Westerners would in due course find it impossible to make progress without cultivating generosity of heart and a good moral foundation. Well, we're really finding out the truth of this, especially in regards to the kind of practice we're going to be noodling around in these next few days. The development of deeper samadhi and concentration. Because there's an undeniable relationship with the power and depth of one's samadhi and the power and depth of their ethics. It's undeniable. So um, I can't encourage you more, pay, you know, pay attention in that, in that venue. It's not just about learning some techniques. There's a whole gestalt to this path that we're on. The use of the precepts for training, they really do support our practice and our whole movement towards, towards liberation. And we can understand these, we can under, understand these precepts in, uh, uh, from three perspectives, the three perspectives I like to look at them with. And the first is, we can understand it, well, they are as training precepts. They tend to be a practice of restraint, okay? Pra very pragmatic in the sense that uh, they help us restrain ourselves from thoughts, speech, and actions that might be harmful to ourselves and others. So there's that element of restraint going. There's the ethics of restraint. That's one. Second one, we can see the, the precepts from the perspective of a principle. And that fundamental principle is non-harming. And the, and, the, and the flip side of that is compassion. So that's, you can see how that's a little bit of a different rationale uh, for utilizing the precepts than, than kind of just for my own practice, which is it's okay in itself, just for my own practice. But it's, it's a little more than that. It's really for living in concert with other people and for the benefit of others. The strong compassionate component. So it's the ethics of compassion. And it's the ethics of restraint. 
And thirdly, we could look at the, uh, the sensibility and the practice of precepts as um, from the perspective of what makes up the characteristics of someone who is spiritually mature? What are those characteristics? That a spiritually mature person has that intrinsic sense The way they act in the world is a natural expression of that awakened heart. It's not a should or it's not a rule or something that needs to be done. It's just inherent in the way that a spiritually mature person leads their life. So if we're just understanding the precepts as uh, solely as training precepts, that can be a little narrow. But if we understand, if we understand them, that there's a principle of compassion fully embedded in the precepts. And that embedding of compassion brings a balance to any sense we have of, oh, rigidity, another list. And if you understand the precepts as something that um, expresses the purity of heart, then it becomes something joyful rather than a should or a rule. I, I like to look at them uh, in my life as kind of signposts that can bring me back to my, my own Buddha nature, that I can, you know, if I'm in the health food store and I'm about to reach into that bin for the cocoa-covered almonds that cost $15 a pound, and I really want one of those and nobody's around, okay, let's reflect on this. Well, what's that about? Where am I going with that? You know? So, um, what I'd like to do tonight is have you just reflect on these precepts? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out loud Thich Nhat Hanh's, um, his way of giving the precepts. And, and, and I want you to just close your eyes, and I'll read them to you, and I want you to reflect on what your life would be like you know, if you really observed these precepts. And beyond that, what would this world be like if everyone observed these precepts? The first one, do not kill. Do not let others kill. Find whatever means possible to protect life. Do not live with a vocation that is harmful to humans and nature. The second one. Just what would that be like to live a life like that? Observe that totally and live in a world where that was the case. The second one. Do not steal. Possess nothing that should belong to others. 
respect the property of others, but prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering and the suffering of other species on earth. The third, sexual expression should not take place without love and long-term commitment. Be fully aware of the suffering you may cause others as a result of your conduct. To preserve the happiness of yourself and others, respect the rights and commitments of others. And the fourth. Do not say untruthful things. Do not spread news that you do not know to be certain. Do not criticize or condemn things you are not sure of. Do not utter words that cause division and hatred that can create discord and cause the family or the community to break. All efforts should be made to reconcile and resolve all conflicts. And the last one. Do not use alcohol or any other intoxicant. Be aware that your fine body has been transmitted to you by your parents and several generations. To destroy your body with alcohol or other intoxicants is to betray your ancestors, parents, and future generations. So in reflecting on the precepts, I hope you get getting a feeling of the subtleties that can be involved with each one of them. And so it's a rich exploration and can be a real source of joy. It's not just a, a list of rules to be tacked up on the wall. It's a lifetime of exploration into the nuances and subtleties of these precepts for training. So, you very rarefied assembly, I know you're tired, but I, but I think let's just sit together for a few minutes. And if it's a sleepy sit, so be it. Just bringing your, bringing your awareness to the aliveness that you feel that's been gifted to you for this day. It's not a forever guarantee. So just rest for a moment coming home in that aliveness.
may the wholesome intentions and wholesome efforts of our sacred assembly that has come together this week, may those wholesome intentions and efforts be combined with the efforts of all contemplatives from all time, past, present, and the future. And together, may those energies serve the welfare, the happiness, and the freedom of all beings. silence now. You probably knew that. And we wish you all a deep rest and we'll see you bright and early. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.